0: This is the Clinical Consult from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. I'm Daniel Elkert, and joining me is Dr. Peter Langman, a licensed psychologist in Pennsylvania, to speak about his expertise in the psychology of school shootings. Dr. Langman is author of the book, Why Kids Kill, Inside the Minds of School Shooters, and more recently, School Shooters, Understanding High School, College, and Adult Perpetrators. His work has been found in numerous publications like the New York Times and Time Magazine, and Dr. Langman has appeared on television programs around the world, including Nightline, 2020, and the Today Show. He's trained law enforcement officers at the FBI National Academy, personnel at the Department of Homeland Security, and his recommendations to prevent school shootings were presented to the Obama administration in 2016 via the American Psychological Association. Dr. Langman, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. Peter, as you're aware, school shootings have occurred in the United States for decades, and to many, there's a perception that the frequency of these tragic occurrences seems to be increasing. And as you're aware, very recently, there was a shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. As you know, that resulted in the deaths of 17 individuals, and sadly, there are many other instances which have deeply harmed the lives of, of students, families, and teachers all around this country. I'm wondering, could you comment on whether school shootings are occurring more regularly than in previous decades? Well, it certainly seems like school
1: students have become more frequent, certainly in the last 30 years or so, compared to the previous decades. Whether or not they've increased in the last few years over in the previous few years, it's hard to say. Part of the issue is with the internet, it's just increased media coverage. So our perception can be skewed by a few high profile events such as the attack in Parkland, Florida. So it's not clear how much we're just more aware of them and how much they are occurring more frequently. But based on an analysis I did of 50 years of school shootings from 2015 all the way back to 1966, the recent decade certainly had far more multi-victim school shootings
0: than the first couple of decades. I heard you use a phrase there, multi-victim school shootings, is that distinct from the phrase school shooting as a standalone term or or are those two things synonymous? Well, when you get into the statistics of school shootings,
1: what is absolutely critical is to look at how someone is defining the term school shootings and what's being included. So generally, my focus is on the larger scale attacks, not individual attacks, not gang-related violence, those kinds of things have always been with us, but what has captured the uh, attention of the nation is the, the larger scale attacks, like a Parkland, Florida. Mm-hmm. Multi-victims, you know, large scale, not just going after one person because of a, a frustration with a romantic situation sure. or you know, a drug deal, but when a kid enters into his own school and just guns down as many people as possible. That's a, kind of attack that most concerns
0: Americans right now. So my focus is on the multi-victim school shooting. And so when you're commenting on the frequency of these shootings, are you referring to those larger scale attacks?
1: Yes, yeah, in my research that I just mentioned over 50 years, I was looking at attacks that had three or more victims and that were not involving you know, rival gang warfare, for example. Different kinds of violence have different causes and would require different interventions. So I think it's important to be very careful about the kind of violent incidents that we're talking
0: about. I see. So with, with the understanding that there's likely no specific checklist of factors that clearly indicate a particular person will in fact become violent, when there is a student who teachers or, or peers or coaches have concern about, what are important qualities or characteristics based on your experience that could be seen as potential warning signs?
1: Well, when you're talking about warning signs, it's not really so much about the, the characteristics of the individual, but the behavior that person has engaged in. So, you know, I like to focus on what's called leakage when people leak their intentions to commit attacks and attack related behavior. So very simply it's you know what they say and what they do. So it's not the kind of clothes they wear or the music they listen to. It's a matter of what have they said, what have they done to indicate they're either thinking about or beyond thinking and actually planning
0: and preparing for an attack. Hmm. So there's that distinction between behaviors that a person is displaying and the characteristics that that person displays. I I heard you use a phrase that sounded important, leakage. Could you speak to what that is more precisely? Leakage is when people leak their intentions. They give away
1: what they are planning to do. And that takes many forms. So in retrospect, with so many cases, there has been a lot of leakage, a lot of things that the perpetrator said to multiple people that were warning signs. In some cases, they simply announce what they're going to do or they brag about what they're going to do. And they may even talk about how famous they're going to be, they're going to be on television, or how many people they intend to kill, and so on. Okay. In other cases, leakage takes the form of warning their friends to stay away because they don't want to kill everybody, They may have certain people they are not trying to kill. so They will tell tell their friends, you know, don't be in the school lobby Monday morning or don't be in the cafeteria at lunch on Friday because I'm going to bring a gun and kill people. Sometimes they invite a peer to join them in the attack. And even if the peer says no, if he doesn't report that invitation, then that attack will not be prevented. So, Leakage takes all kinds of forms. In today's world, it may show up on websites and social media, comments to friends, sometimes even in homework assignments that the
0: perpetrators hand in. So leakage would qualify as one of those behaviors that you're talking about. And sometimes there are these direct verbal threats that occur, and sometimes it sounds like there are more indirect behaviors that may present themselves as well. Right, and the
1: other concept besides leakage that I mentioned is attack-related behaviors. And that simply means anything the perpetrator is doing to prepare for the attack. And that could include creating a list of intended victims. It could be diagramming the school and deciding where to set up a sniper attack or how to enter the building or where to place explosives. It could be the act of obtaining the firearms or bombs or whatever weapons they're going to use. You know, all these steps have to occur before the attack. So if people hear about attack-related behavior, you know, that's a, a warning sign that needs to be reported.
0: I think there's a perception that in most instances of school shooting, the perpetrator uh, identifies as a man. And I'm wondering, could you speak to the, the truthfulness of that? Does that hold up to the research?
1: I'm sorry, are you asking about uh, male-female perpetrators? You know, are they always
0: male? Yes, yeah. Is it true that most school shooters are men?
1: You know, it is certainly true that most
0: school shooters are male.
1: It's not true that all school shooters are male. There are more girls or women who have committed school shootings than people tend to be aware of. Sometimes those attacks are single victim attacks, but there have been multiple women who have committed larger-scale school shootings, and they tend not to get as much attention. They're less common, and the attacks tend not to be the really big attacks that most people hear about, such as Columbine, Virginia Tech, Sandy Hook, and now Park. But there have certainly been female shooters.
0: Okay. So Peter, you've spoken previously about threat assessment teams as an important tool for schools to promote school safety. Could you describe what threat assessment teams are and talk about the unique role of psychologists on these teams? Threat assessment
1: teams are people within a school who are especially trained to investigate and evaluate warning signs of potential violence that are brought to their attention. And typically, these are multidisciplinary teams with someone from administration, maybe a faculty member, school psychologist, guidance counselor, school resource officer, security guard, if they have one. And the the purpose of these teams is to distinguish a false alarm, a student comment that is not really a threat, from the potential real threat of violence that may be occurring in their school.
0: So you've described different people who are on these threat assessment teams and from your description, there are people from different disciplines and in different capacities functioning in schools. What's the value of having that kind of heterogeneous makeup on a threat assessment team?
1: Well, people from different disciplines bring a different level of expertise and a different perspective to the situation being investigated. So that's important. And what psychologists offer is a couple of things. One is the ability through their training and experience to form a meaningful relationship with the student and hopefully be able to elicit information from that student so the, the school has the best idea possible of what's going on and they can accurately evaluate the risk. The other piece that, that psychologists bring is you know, the knowledge of mental health issues. And You know, some shooters are very traumatized kids, others are very psychopathic, as we discussed, and some may be experiencing the onset of psychotic symptoms, such as schizophrenia. To have a psychologist on that team is really important because that's the person who could identify those emerging mental health issues as they might relate to a potential threat of violence.
0: So, what's the frequency that schools, particularly at the middle school, high school, and potentially college levels, would have a threat assessment team in place? Is this a frequent thing that schools have? You know, my impression is that most K 12 schools do not
1: have a threat assessment team in place. They are much more likely to have, you know, lockdown drills and some kind of active shooter training which is important, but that's not prevention, that's crisis response. That's what you do after there's an armed intruder in the building. Threat assessment is how you can prevent the attack from occurring. And I think that's where our schools need to, to do more to get up to speed with that.
0: I heard you make, I think, an important distinction there on the words prevention as opposed to crisis response. Could you sort of reiterate the distinction there? Sure. You know.
1: Lockdown drills and so on are important because they can save lives after there's an armed intruder in the building, but they're not preventing the armed intruder from coming in. And the idea of prevention means identifying the warning signs early so that if students are building towards committing a rampage attack, you're aware of it, those warning signs get reported, you have a threat assessment team in place to investigate, evaluate, and when necessary, intervene. So prevention is really a matter of identifying those warning signs and engaging in threat assessment.
0: So, so many of our listeners, I heard you say that your impression is that most schools would not have a clear threat assessment team set in place. Some of our listeners may be wondering what guidelines exist to help schools develop these types of teams to support student safety? Now I'm not aware of any federal guidelines. I'm not even sure about uh, state
1: requirements or guidelines for threat assessment teams. I think that that whole area of threat assessment and, and educating people about warning signs is just a weak spot for us currently as a nation.
0: And because of the lack of frequency of these types of threat assessment teams, it's, it sounds like it's a possibility that schools may reach out to a psychologist working in the community to meet with a particular student. Um, Could you talk about that scenario and uh, share a little bit about what a psychologist might do or respond to that type of a situation?
1: You know psychologists in the community who are sent a student to evaluate for potential school shooting risks are in a very difficult position. And if you're not trained in evaluating that kind of risk, you should simply not take the case on because ethically you should not be practicing outside your area of expertise. If you are interested in this kind of work though, you can attend trainings on threat assessment and you know make yourself educated on the topic. Even then, however, It's tricky because part of threat assessment is not simply interviewing the student in question. A full threat assessment is really a comprehensive investigation. That means looking at the student record or consulting with uh, the student's teachers to see what's been seen or heard in class or what's been written in homework assignments. And it means interviewing the student's peers to find out what they've heard because they've often heard more than any of the school staff has heard. Now, if you're in private practice, all you have access to really is that student. So, if you're asked to make a declaration that that student being safe to return to school, you're being asked to do that with really minimal information available. And that's a tricky position to be in.
0: And from your perspective, there's this ethical concern about boundaries of competence that psychologists need to be mindful of in that situation.
1: Yes. You know, and my impression is, you know, psychologists generally are trained in, you know, suicide prevention and the questions to ask and so on. But again, my impression is most people have not been trained in homicide risk assessment, particularly relating to, you know, rampage attacks. So if you haven't been trained in that, That's not something to enter into. This is a very serious issue. It's a life and death issue. So if you're going to do that work, absolutely, you must, you know, get trained as much as possible and and do the reading, you know, get the the books and just immerse yourself in this because it is a very difficult uh, task to do, especially if you're going to do it largely in
0: isolation. So one thing you've also written about, and I wanna make sure we can discuss what's called the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, or FERPA, which is a federal law protecting students' education records. When psychologists are serving on threat assessment teams, what steps could they take to ensure that they remain compliant with this law when when discussing students?
1: Okay,
0: FERPA has been often misinterpreted
1: and this is a key issue when it comes to threat assessment and violence prevention. PERPA is there to protect students' educational records. It does not apply to threats students made to commit violent attacks. And at times, it has been over-interpreted, you know, too narrowly, too strictly. And people have not communicated information, even within their own school about students who were presenting a serious risk of violence. So the Department of Education has come out with a document about balancing privacy and FERPA with safety concerns, and it makes very clear in a variety of ways that safety concerns certainly can and should be communicated because you know, saving people's lives takes precedence over protecting student confidentiality and what FERC is really about is the official student record and threats that they may make in class or to peers in the hallway do not constitute part of the official
0: student record. So there's a difference between a personal knowledge of a student that a member of a threat assessment team may hold versus what's documented in their record. What would be an example of something that would be documented in their record versus a piece of information that is held by personal knowledge?
1: Well, you know, student records would include things like their, their courses and their grades, for example. Okay. A student who makes a threat in the cafeteria to kill somebody, that's not part of the official record. And you know, even in private practice settings, we certainly have to... Respects fire confidentiality, but if there's imminent threat of, you know, suicide or homicide, danger to self or other, we break confidentiality, and the same applies to FERPA. So this is a really important point. As I said, in other, in certain cases, schools have really limited discussion, even within their own staff, of students who presented serious threats of violence. And that limited discussion then hampered the threat assessment process and the intervention, and in some cases, people have died. So this is a really critical point that threats are not
0: protected by FERPA. So that's at the federal level with FERPA. Are there state-level considerations or laws that discuss student privacy that should be important for psychologists to consider. Is that something that in your experience has come up? You know, I cannot speak to you know the laws across all 50 states,
1: but I have not encountered anything relating to confidentiality or privacy with students that would be any different than what we've been discussing. That you know safety concerns certainly need to be addressed. You know, keeping people alive is more important than protecting student information. I am not aware of any state laws that would be different than what we've been discussing regarding FERPA.
0: So you've also written in your books, you've written about particular psychological types of school shooters. Could you briefly describe some of the most important characteristics of these types? Sure. The, The first type is what I call the
1: psychopathic school shooter. And in my usage of the term psychopathic, I'm talking about certain things such as extreme narcissism, profound self-regard, and lack of concern for anybody else. So along with the narcissism, there's a lack of empathy for other people. They don't feel guilt and remorse the way most people do. So they don't care if they hurt other people. In fact, they may even be actively sadistic. And seek out and enjoy opportunities to hurt and kill others. So there's a disregard for law and morality because that only gets in the way of their doing what they want. And what they want to do may involve murder. So these are people without a, a conscience and live for themselves and may just seek out the opportunity to become famous by killing others or to
0: just enjoy the thrill of having absolute power of life and death. So that, and that again, would be the psychopathic type that you're referencing. What other types? Yeah. The second type I talk about is what I call the psychotic
1: shooter, And this is someone with usually schizophrenia or in some cases, schizotypal personality disorder. Regardless of the actual diagnosis that best fits, however, what you tend to see is someone who's not fully in touch with reality. It may be full-blown psychotic symptoms such as auditory hallucinations, maybe even visual hallucinations, and delusions, most commonly paranoid delusions, but sometimes also delusions of grandeur. So these are people who are not fully functioning in reality. And they also tend to have very impaired social and emotional functioning, They tend to be painfully aware that there's something very wrong with them. And they look around at their peers, and it it seems to them that all their peers are perfectly fine and happy and living the life that they themselves wish they could be living. There's often a lot of envy among the psychotic shooters, and they may be driven eventually to kill the very people that they envy, because the envy turns to rage, and that rage turns to hatred and violence.
0: I'm more, also, you've described another type of shooter that you've called the traumatized type. What do you mean by that? Okay, well, the first two types, of psychopathic and psychotic, typically come
1: from your more or less stable, intact, middle-class families. There may be you know, ups and downs. There may be a separation or divorce, but nothing you know, markedly dysfunctional in the family. But when you get to the traumatized school shooters, These are people who grow up in severely and chronically violent, dysfunctional homes. So in every case, at least one of the parents, sometimes both, have drug or alcohol problems. Often one of the parents, maybe both, have criminal histories. There's domestic violence in the home. There's child abuse in the form of physical abuse and emotional abuse. Sometimes there's even sexual abuse in the home, so that may also be in the community or one of the foster homes that the kids grow up in. And with all this uh, instability, the kids are often bouncing around from home to home because maybe parents don't live together, parents are too dysfunctional, so they're put into a grandparent's home or run through a series of foster homes, so they may be changing school districts regularly, so they have no continuity with their peer group, no continuity with their education. So their lives are you know, just long series of traumas and emotional upsets and stresses, and eventually they become violent. Now, one important point with the typology is to keep in mind that most people who are psychotic, psychopathic, or traumatized never become killers. So these categories are not complete explanations. They're part of the puzzle, but there's other factors involved. And it's important to keep in mind from a risk assessment standpoint that just because someone's in one of those categories or is displaying certain traits or symptoms doesn't mean they're at risk to become a killer. However, if you're already investigating someone because of threats that person has made, and then you start seeing evidence that they may sit in one of those categories, that's important to note, because it might mean they have the psychological ability to actually
0: commit a
1: killing.
0: I know earlier when, when we started our conversation, I mentioned the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And I think it's important to acknowledge activism by students who are seeking to prevent gun violence. Perhaps most notably recently, the group Never Again MSD, which helped organize the recent March for Our Lives demonstration. Peter, school shootings are, as you know, a deeply personal issue, and related to that, the topic of gun control in the U.S. is very political, as I'm sure you're aware. So I'm wondering, in your view, what role should psychologists working in schools or on threat assessment teams hold in supporting students who are working to prevent gun violence through this kind of activism? Well, I think... Everyone wants to reduce firearm
1: violence. The, the question becomes, how do they want to do that? And I certainly think it's appropriate for psychologists to support students who are trying to make the world safer. You know, One focus of my work is the issue of firearm safety in the home, which is not really a political issue. We're not trying to change firearm laws with that. But when you're talking about juvenile perpetrators, in over 90% of the cases in one of my studies, they got their guns from home. And their parents or grandparents or older siblings were legal firearm owners, but they did not properly secure the firearms in the home. So, you know, one message I always have for people is to promote firearm safety in the home. And that's something that I would hope everyone can, can get behind, regardless of attitudes towards firearm laws and other things being proposed, but that the, the idea of educating the public to keep your guns safe when you have children and adolescents in the home, that is you know, my focus. And that's something that I would encourage student activists to get behind, because that kind of bypasses a lot of the politics and that's something that I think across the board, everyone is in
0: favor of firearms. So I heard you use that phrase, um, bypass the politics. I'm, I'm wondering if you could speak to what you meant by that. That's you know, a message about you know, educating the public.
1: Once you start proposing specific laws, that becomes you know, very partisan, very complicated, and becomes a very heated discussion that historically has not had much impact in terms of leading to meaningful change. So, not that people shouldn't advocate for those kinds of changes, but I think as much as possible, it's good to find common ground that could move us forward in terms
0: of preventing firearm violence. So, from your perspective, psychologists in these roles would be – well, positioned to focus on these sort of really practical, what you're calling more nonpartisan <clears throat> suggestions or support techniques, like focusing on gun safety in the home. Right. So, if you're doing threat assessment with a student, you know, one of the
1: fundamental questions is Does a student have easy access to a gun? And if the answer is yes, there's multiple guns in the home and they're not locked up, if they're easily accessible that becomes a major safety concern. So that, to me, is where we could make a big difference in reducing the shootings by juvenile perpetrators by just making sure they don't have easy access within their own homes to fire on.
0: It seems to me that's a challenging suggestion to follow through on. I mean, are there specific action steps that, you know, from your experience, Discussing and researching this issue that would be good for psychologists to take to to try to to do just that Well a lot depends on the attitude of the parents and In terms
1: of making their home safer there are various kinds of gun safe uh, gun cabinets if the parents don't have them they could get them They could also have firearms removed from the home and maybe kept in the home of a relative for a certain period, certainly if if they have a a child going through a crisis and is planning uh, a potential school shooting, you know, getting the guns out of the house would be the safest alternative. Uh, If the parents aren't willing to do that, they could, you know, invest in a a gun safe and Mm -hmm. just make sure that whether it's a combination lock or a a key
0: lock that the child has no uh, access to the key or no knowledge of the combination. So what I'm hearing from you is that there's this important sense of activism that students are putting forward and they should feel empowered to do that and psychologists should support them in those endeavors. But there's also a really practical element where when working in the role of a threat assessment team, there should be a focus on some of these really practical changes that can really affect the well-being and safety of students in um, kind of more an immediate time frame. So I also know I I want to talk a little bit about your website. You maintain a website called schoolshooters.info, and this contains just a wealth of resources and information about school shootings, perpetrators, and different prevention strategies. Could you talk a little bit about what some of the most important features of your website are and what features psychologists should be aware of? Sure. really two aspects that the the website functions in. One
1: is it functions as a library of documents. There's over 460 documents totaling over 60,000 pages. So there's a massive amount of material. Some of them are articles I've written or that colleagues have written, but most of the material is original source material. So we have thousands and thousands of Documents released by law enforcement relating to particular incidents. There's over a hundred court cases because when the perpetrator survived the attack, then there's a court case and often multiple appeals. We have those documents. There's a lot of uh, documents that the shooters themselves have written. And if you want to get inside the mind of a perpetrator, one of the best ways to do that is to, to read his journal, for example, or web pages. So there's that kind of material as well. So it's a library of all these documents, a whole page of them devoted to school safety, threat assessment, warning signs, and so on. But besides being a library of documents, it's also a database, which is searchable. There's information on over 140 perpetrators, mainly from the United States, but with several international cases as well, going way back um, to the early 20th century. And you can search this database uh, with a variety of sort of parameters, including you know age, number of victims, country, state, time period, if you're looking for certain shootings within a specific time period or a particular state, as I said, gender, racial, ethnic, identity, there's all kinds of search parameters. So if you're interested in doing some research, you have a built-in data set right there. And you can also look up shooters individually. You can pick a, a perpetrator that you're trying to learn about, and if I have documents, they would all be on that one perpetrator's page for easy access and reference. So whether you're a researcher, you know, a journalist, psychologist, anyone who just wants to learn about the phenomenon in general or about a particular incident, there's a massive amount of information and large number of documents available on the
0: website. So that was that website, schoolshooters.info. But besides this particular website, what other resources would you recommend for psychologists who are searching for more information about either school shootings or about threat assessment teams in particular?
1: Well, if you're working in a K-12 setting, now I would encourage people to look up the work of a psychologist named Dr. Dewey Cornell, uh, he's the author of a book, Guidelines on Responding to Student Threats of Violence. So if you want to set up a, a threat assessment team where you're going to be participating in one, you know, I, I highly recommend that book. Mm. There's also an organization for campus safety in higher education. at the National Behavioral Intervention Team Association. They have a website. They've created you know, assessment tools, and, and written numerous white papers about aspects of campus safety. So there's a lot of organizations out there, you know, addressing school safety, safety in general. There's the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals, another you know, group that is good to be aware of if you're going to be part of a
0: threat assessment team. Great. These are really helpful resources, but I. I do want to be mindful of the time, and I'm aware that we are going to need to wrap up for today, but I I really want to thank my guest, Dr. Peter Langman, for joining me on this episode of the Clinical Consult from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists.